You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Joshua chapter 5. We're continuing in, in our great story of uh, the taking of God's promised land for his people. And we're in chapter 5. We'll be reading in verse 13 through the first five verses of chapter 6. Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat." And the people shall go up, every one straight before him. This is God's word. I want to start out by showing you a map. Uh, We've been talking so much about this story. And this is a map of the journey of the Israelites uh, from their rescue and redemption from Egypt in slavery and their journey to the promised land, you see following this red line. To To the west here, you see Egypt where they camped. Uh, there uh, in Egypt at Goshen, and a journey that should have taken 11 days took 40 years. An 11-day journey by foot takes 40 years. This is where God uh, parts the Red Sea, and they cross on dry land. They go to the south to Sinai, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments on the mountain there where he meets with God and he comes down and his face is glowing like the sun because he's been in the presence of God. And they continue to journey and wander around for 40 years because of disobedience and uh, continued disbelief and not uh, hearing the word of the Lord and following it. Uh, This is where God provided manna from heaven, bread from heaven, and where he split the rock open and water came out. Um, This is where they wander for 40 years. And then to the east there, all the way at the top, you see on the eastern banks there of the Jordan River, uh, this is where they prepare themselves to cross the Jordan. God parts the Jordan River. They walk again on dry land, and now they're on the western banks of the Jordan River at Gilgal, where they settle, and now they're really close to Jericho, that fortified city that stands before them and between them and 
Canaan, the promised land. And this is where, uh, just to the west of Jericho and Canaan there, that's where you have uh, to the north, Nazareth. To the south, you have Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. You have Jerusalem, right there in the capital city of Israel. That's just some context. This is, this is the history of God's people. An amazing story. And it is now the day before God's people are going to advance to Jericho. And what is Joshua doing? And you can take that map off, thanks. Here's what he's doing. He's all by himself. Uh, he, he had a busy week, the week prior, uh, as we learned last week in our series, as he prepares all the men of Israel uh, to receive the sign of God's covenant promise. He's weary, he's tired. And what is he doing? He's off by himself. And our passage tells us that he lifts up his eyes. He goes out from the camp and he looks upon the challenge that is before him. This great fortified city and perhaps to pray, perhaps to contemplate, perhaps to think, perhaps to strategize uh, like a general that he is. And Joshua knows a few things about Jericho and about his own people. He knows that his own army has no military experience and Jericho is a fortified city trained for war and ready to guard their city and protect themselves from any adversary that comes their way. He knows that his army is about to face the most advanced army the next day. And Israel lacks experience. They lack weapons. They lack real intel of the city. And he's likely looking upon the city and thinking, what are we going to do? How will we take this city. And he looks up, his eyes look up, and there before him is a man, a warrior with his sword, uh, his sword drawn. <laughs> there we go. People don't walk around like this with their, a sword drawn at their side, gripped in their hand. People don't walk around with a, a, a pistol unholstered. People don't walk around with a drawn bow. This is a, a posture of uh, readiness for attack. Joshua says, are you for us or are you, are you against us? Because he sees this man ready for battle, ready for attack, and he challenges him. Joshua challenges him now to a question. Are you with us or are you against us? Joshua gives him two choices a challenge for him. And this man ready for battle with a sword in his hand says, no. <laughs> what an interesting answer. How do you like that? No. This Hebrew word, it's a common word. It's, it's a definitive answer to a yes or no question. No. And except the problem is Joshua doesn't ask a yes or no question. And that's the problem. This man is saying, you're, you're asking the wrong question. I won't answer your question the way that you expect me to answer it because your question is wrong. You're asking if I am for you or against you when you really should be asking and wondering, are you for me or against me? And so he changes the whole category and the whole, the whole rules of this question. No, Joshua, this is not about if I'm for you or against you. 
This is about, if, are you for me or against me? This man is not playing by Joshua's rules, and he's not even giving in to his challenge. He's changing the script, and he's now challenging Joshua, and he's saying, you must decide this day who you serve, because I don't serve you. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. We don't take questions. And we get Joshua's answer pretty quickly because he falls on his face in worship and says, what does my Lord have to say to his servant? Who is this man with his sword that is drawn? Is this an angel? We don't know much about angels in Scripture. We know some, but we do know this, that that God's people do not worship angels. In fact, at times when they have fallen down in worship of angels, they're rebuked by the angels and corrected by the angels because angels are created beings and creation does not receive worship. Only the creator receives worship. You worship God and you worship God only. Well, this isn't a hologram. This is not a vision. Joshua is not in a trance or in a dream. This is a person, a real person standing before him. And there's instances in scripture where angels are manifested before people, where their their form, their angelic form is is maybe changed and they manifest themselves uh, before God's people. They sing before uh, Jesus' birth to the shepherds. They minister to Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness. They visit Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, They're present at Jesus' resurrection. There are instances of angels, of an angel that appears. And then there are instances in Scripture of the angel. Do you understand the difference? There's an angel, and there are angels that are appeared throughout history. But then there's mention of the angel, the angel of the Lord, not an angel, but, but the angel, the messenger of God. And what we we know about this man is that this is a divine being who comes with the full authority of God himself and who is qualified to receive worship from people. Either this is a a self-revelation of Yahweh, such as God speaking to Moses through the burning bush, or this is the pre-incarnate Christ made visible to Joshua, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, long before he takes on human form in the person of Jesus through the birth of Mary, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Messiah who is coming hundreds of years before. Whoever this was, whoever this is, he receives the worship of Joshua, and Joshua is not rebuked. Angels don't receive worship because they're created. Only creator receives worship. This is the God of Joshua who is making himself known to Joshua. This is our God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Bible is making himself known to Joshua and has come to him, not just revealing himself to him, but coming to Joshua in a time of need, pursuing him, coming to earth, leaving a place of glory in heaven and taking on this humble form and manifesting himself to Joshua. Joshua, God shows up 
to Joshua. And in this brief yet amazing encounter, we see Joshua preparing to embark on the fight of his life. The fight of his life, and he needs to remember a few things. And this will help us too in our challenges. As Joshua embarks on the fight of his life, God reveals himself, shows himself to him, and shows him who he is and what he is going to do. And when we are in the fight of our life, or when we are in the midst of challenges, or when we are facing the fight of our life, or even just the labor and weariness of living in a broken world, these same things are relevant to us. What do we need to remember and know about God? The first thing we learn through this is that God will and can come to earth and deliver his will show up. He can show up. The transcendent, the other, the holy, the one who is not like us, the one who is apart from us and beyond us, he becomes imminent. He becomes personal. He becomes with us. The one who is above and separate from all of creation has come into creation with great ease to reach us, to reach Joshua, to guide him, to comfort him, to fight for him, and to ultimately deliver him. God is the great initiator of his people. So much of our religious energy and activity at times can be focused on wrongly trying to find our way to God, to pursue God, to initiate with God, to find God to make our way to God through our religious activity, through our religious uh, intellect, always trying to get close to God, to be where he is. But what comfort there is for us to know that, that through our uh, imperfect pursuit of him, God does not wait for his people to come to him and find him, but God comes to us and he finds us. That God is telling us, I am not one who stays far off, waiting for you to journey through this great chasm of distance between you and me because of your sinfulness and my holiness. But God bridges that gap by coming to earth to be with his people, to rescue his people. Joshua was staring down a problem, and he goes to this place to wrestle with his problem, and he finds himself staring down God because God has come to him. It's so encouraging, so encouraging to observe throughout the history of the world the various ways that God takes special care in reminding his people, I am with you, and I am close to you, and I am among you. God speaks to Adam and Eve. He walks with them in the garden he talks with them. He speaks with Abraham. He talks with Moses face to face, we are told. God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. When three exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the fiery furnace because they refuse to worship King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, they're thrown into the fire, three of them into the fire, and the soldiers that throw them in look down into the pit of fire and they see four men, all of them protected, not one of them singed. And we are told that this is the angel of the Lord with them, protecting them. And God is constantly reminding us, I am with you. I come to you. 
And this man in that furnace is called the Son of God. You know anybody else called that in the scriptures? This is so easy to see as we continue to talk about this, that God comes to his people, pursues his people, comes to earth to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ coming to be with us. Jacob has this physical wrestling with God. After he cheats his brother out of a blessing from his father, he, he runs off and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And his hip is knocked out of socket and he limps for the rest of his life, but he is spared. He wrestles here. And there's so many more stories just like this. So many more places where God says, I'm coming to you. I'm showing myself to you. And every time I show myself to you, you're going to learn more about me. These are called theophanies, which means this visible manifestation of God. Years ago, I was going through a drive through and one of the workers' name was Theo. And this was a, a woman. Her name was Theo. And I said, that's a really cool name. It's interesting. I don't hear that a lot for girls. And she said, well, it's actually short for theophany. And I said, you're kidding me. Do you know what that means? And she says, no, I have no idea what that means. And so I'm here, I'm talking about this, how God meets us and, and shows himself to us and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're sitting there, she was so encouraged that this was her name and this is what it meant. And she was so happy. I mean, everybody in the drive-thru behind me wasn't happy, but she was like <laughs> so happy. I'm sure they were fine. Here's the thing, when God appears to us in these variety of ways, when he, when he comes to us and shows himself, there's common ingredients. Almost every time that God reveals himself to us in this special way, there's common ingredients for why he does this. It's a visible manifestation of the invisible God initiated always by God. He's the one that starts this conversation. It's a, there's always a declaration of holiness a declaration of like what's happening here is, is holy and different and unnatural. Revelation of God in some way, this God-ordained action that is about to happen, there is a comforting reminder of the promise and character of God to the person who's either preparing for something difficult or in the midst of fear and struggle. And then there's always worship. When God reveals himself, those are these, all those ingredients, and it's happening here for Joshua. The comforting theme here is meant to prepare us to receive this supreme truth and proof that God initiates with us, and he can and will always come to deliver his people. Not through a theophany, not through this mere manifestation of God, but through a real and true coming of God into the world. The book of Hebrews reminds us that in former ways, this is how God worked. He always revealed himself to his people through visions and, and images and angels and prophets. But in these last days, most preeminently and supremely, he reveals himself most fully to us through Jesus Christ. Because the one person who actually specializes in coming to his people is Jesus Christ. Not a manifestation of God, but God himself. Jesus is not like God, 
He is not a manifestation of God. He is the true essence of God, the same substance of God, perfectly God, fully God, and becoming a man, becoming fully man without losing his perfect holiness and deity. You see, in Jesus, we see how much God longs pursue his people, how much he longs to truly be with his people, to take away their sins, to bring them into the fullness of joy and everlasting salvation. What an amazing encounter that Joshua has of just a yet another story of how God initiates with his people and says, I will come and I will save you. I will be with you. And yet another example and proof of God's promise that he will always come to be with his people. You see, this warrior wanted Joshua to know that God was there and God was with him. A true story of comfort. And yet another example here, another thing that that we are reminded of and learn about is that not only is he just with us, but God is holy. God is holy. You know, Moses wants to meet God, and God comes through a a burning mountain. Job wants to meet God, and God comes to him in a tornado. Jacob wants to meet God and comes to him through this, like, wrestling match that leaves him forever injured. Joshua wants to meet God, and he meets him, you know, as a fully armed commander and warrior. There's nothing weak and fuzzy about God. God is holy. This means that he is perfect. It means that there is no one like him. To be holy is to be transcendently perfect and incomparable. There's no one like him. There is no one on his level. And here is what Joshua wants to know. Are you for us or against us? Will you help me? Do you agree with me and our plans and pursuits? Will you assist us in our military strategy? And this general is like, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. You, You know, you can't talk to a general of an army like that. Let alone, like the general, the commander of the army of the Lord And you go up to and say, and you lay out your blueprint for your attack and say, would you give me your input? And he's saying, I'm sorry. Go ahead and roll up that plan. This is not why I'm here. Here to agree with you. You cannot talk to the general of God's army like he is someone who exists to help you in your conquest in life. To help you with your plans and desires and dreams in life. Joshua, he confronts this commander and the commander shows us this, he shows him like the Uno reverse card, right? (laughs) I'm just trying to have fun with it, guys. (laughs) And he says, either I come into your life as your commander or I don't come into your life at all. I come into your life as the one who's in charge or I don't come at all. This is what God says to us. We often approach God in this way. I can believe you. I can follow you. I can love you. I can serve you. I can worship you if dot, dot, dot. Here is how I would like you, God, to help with my life and assist in my life and improve my life. 
here is how I would like things to go, and I've heard that you're the kind of person who can help me get there. And he says, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're asking the wrong questions. To ask if God agrees with our views is the wrong question. Because God is not interested in a moral discussion with us, the only question that matters is this, do you agree with God? Do you agree with him? God comes into our life not to take questions, but to take over. To take over our hearts, to take over our lives, to take over our dreams and desires, to guide us in truth, to guide us in righteousness. Now, God has many attributes, and and we find... We find these all through Scripture, right? His holiness is not the only one. We find so many of his, all of his attributes to be beneficial and good. He is patient. He is loving. He is kind. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's just. He's good. But the only way to understand those attributes of God is to first understand that he's holy, that he's other, that his categories for what it means to be loving and kind and just and merciful, it's not how we define those categories by our experiences or how we think they might impact somebody else's life. They have to be understood first under his holiness. That means when it comes to understanding what it means to love other people, he doesn't consult with us. When, when it comes to making plans for our life, he doesn't consult with us. Either he comes into our life as the Holy One or he doesn't come at all. And he's showing Joshua here, he shows us that it is more important to know God's character than it is to know his plan. And we often pursue God, seeking out his plan. What, do you, what should I do here? How, what, what should be my next step? Seeking guidance for how we are to uh, elevate our plan and agenda for our life. And what he shows us is not this detailed plan for how we are to fulfill our dreams, but he shows us his character. He shows us his promises. He shows us his righteousness, his holiness, and he commands us to follow him and devote our life to him. We can, we can so easily become more interested in the plan of God rather than in a, a right relationship with him, the one who plans all things. The most important prerequisite for serving God and seeing God's purposes activated in our life is a life that is dedicated to worship him. The the most important prerequisite to knowing, God, what do you have for me, is a life that worships him. What is worship? Worship is glad submission. Now, I could say, you know, worship is submission, but that can sound a lot like this. Submission is fine. Fine. My life is yours. Fine. I'll do what you say. I'm submitting to you. That's not worship. Worship is glad submission. Worship is saying, yes, my life is yours. Yes, my heart is yours. Yes, all that I am is yours. I lay my life before the altar of your mercy and grace and love. Falling face down like Joshua in this position, this position of reverence and awe and submission and love and worship. We're always face to face with this challenge as individual Christians, as a church, 
as a, as a gospel witness in our world. And we're always face to face with this issue. What's more important than the plan for how we want God to work in our life? It is our right relationship with the one who plans everything. Finally, sometimes nothing feels quite so unlikely as the plans and promises of God. Amen? Yeah. Sometimes the most ridiculous things in life that are hard to believe are the things that God tells us. God works in mysterious ways. You've heard that phrase? Well, yeah, but even when his ways are not mysterious, even those things don't seem right. <laughs> like, I'm going to take it a step further and say, even the ways that are not mysterious don't make sense. So here, this angel is telling, or not, excuse me, this commander of the Lord's army is telling Joshua exactly the plans that he has for him. So his plans are no longer mysterious. They're made known clearly. And chapter 6 introduces the plan to bring judgment on Jericho, who has persisted in sinfulness for generations, and it's a ridiculous plan. Walk around the city one time each day for six days, and on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times that day. And when you're done on the seventh time, making the seventh revolution around the city, I want you to take seven antlers from rams <laughs> that have been hollowed out, and I want you to blow through them and make a noise and then scream really loud. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> so good. I think we can just end there. <laughs> you get it? This is ridiculous. It's almost, it's insulting. It's insulting. When stressful things happen, we tend to sink either into ourselves or into in despair, or we become these like really frantic problem solvers. Right? I don't know which one you are. Maybe both, depending on the hour. Well, morning I start out like this, and the evening I start out like this. So life is hard, stressful things happen, and you either say, I'm in despair, I can't do it, and you throw up your hands, and you just become just a mess of, you know, despair. Or you say, it's time to get to work, I'm going to be a, a, a problem solver, we can fix this. These are common pitfalls, and, and both of these pitfalls, they don't work for Joshua. Like, God does not give him an option to be either of these. He doesn't say, it's time to get to work. Here's what you got to do. No, he is saying, I'm actually removing your skill from this equation. I'm removing your character. I am removing you because you are in the way of what I want to do. We have a tendency to get in the way of God's glory and his praise by either becoming in this place of just great despair and depression or in this place of frantic problem-solving. So what God does is sometimes what he does is he intentionally sets aside our contribution altogether so that we and others who observe what God is doing will have no doubt in our mind as to who is doing the work here to witness the splendor and majesty and power of God 
and his faithfulness. The victory does not come from us. And this will be made so clear at the battle of Jericho. And this is the way that God works. He rescues us, not through our strength, not through our problem-solving abilities. He rescues us in ways so unlikely that it removes all confusion as to who is the one who is doing the rescuing. This is a ridiculous military strategy. And what we'll find out next week is it actually works. (laughs) We're told that not a single brick stands upon another brick in the city of Jericho. It's so unlikely. It's so insulting. And when we hear God tell us things and lead us into truth, we become these skeptics or we, get, we, we become these frantic problem solvers or we become desperate and despairing. And he wants us to know that his plans will oftentimes feel very unlikely to be accomplished, but he is the one who never fails. And nowhere is this made more clear than at the cross. Nowhere is this made more clear where God removes our contribution more clearly than when he sends his son to die on the cross for us. People were baffled by the claims that Jesus had to give up his life for a ransom for sinners. They were baffled that he had to give his life, that he would die. His his disciples were so confused that he had to die in order to forgive their sins. But Jesus said in so many ways and even in very clear, explicit ways to the religious leaders, to his disciples, he says, I have been telling this story forever, that it will not be about you, that it will not be through your character. Haven't you read your Bibles, he says. Haven't you read the prophets? Haven't you read the story of God, how God rescues his people from slavery Salvation was never going to come through our own hands. It had to come through God's initiation with us. It had to come through the initiative of his grace and mercy and power. And the only one capable of doing what we needed to do was going to be Jesus. It was going to be God himself that would come to us, not as a manifestation of God, God, but the true essence of God, the exact imprint of God, born into our lives, the one who is transcendent, perfectly transcendent, the one who is holy, humiliates himself, becomes a man even to the point of death. God became a man. The holy one has come. And God's sword is drawn, and instead of striking down us in our sin, he strikes his own son. We are told that he is stricken for us in our place. The sword of the Lord does not come against Joshua this day. The sword of the Lord does not come to us, but it comes to Christ. And like Joshua, we should fall on our face in worship because of the cross. And we are put up to the challenge just like Joshua is. When we come to God with our agenda, we we come with a challenge to God if you love me, if you care, if you're really good, if I really matter. And he proposes an alternate challenge to us, and that challenge is we can come to crown him 
or to kill him, to love him or to hate him. There is no in-between. We can reject him or we can fall down in worship. And it's there we give our worship not to a tyrannical king, not to a tyrant who seeks to rob us of our joy, but the one who seeks to give us true definition of freedom and fullness of joy. The one whose love is boundless and his mercy never ends. And one that we can trust in giving our whole life to. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.